I had a very varied background. I um, got a, a, a undergraduate degree in uh, religious studies at University of Tennessee, and from there I went on to Harvard Divinity School and uh, studied Tibetan Buddhism. And then I ended up going to law school. <laughs> None of these get you on a path to like saying like I'm going to blend whiskey for the rest of my life. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And this is episode 264 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And before we start the podcast, here's your weekly bourbon news update. A new bottle shop is opening in Northern Kentucky in the Covington area called Revival Vintage Bottle Shop. It's the home to a collection of hundreds of rare and vintage bottles, carefully curated by bourbon expert and friend of the podcast, Brad Bonds, who worked with Ed Bly at Cork and Bottle for a number of years. Vintage and rare spirit collectors can legally buy and sell bottles. Revival can also provide professional bottle valuations and plans to be able to assist with bottle exchanges in the future. Revival's online shop will go live on August 7th. For more information about location, time of operation, and online inventory, visit RevivalKY.com. Two weeks ago, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost requested a federal injunction to keep out-of-state liquor and wine companies from shipping products to Ohio. Now, several of those companies say they were improperly named in that injunction, and the Attorney General's filing accuses seven companies of shipping tens of thousands of packages of wine and spirits to Ohio. Now, state law requires that liquor and wine, in most cases, to be sold through licensed sellers, and Yost asked a federal judge to order these companies to stop shipping to Ohio and update their business practices and hand over records. Now, on the flip side, Just last week, a lawsuit was filed against Ohio based on its wine retailer shipping law, which allows in-state retailers to ship to Ohio consumers, but denies the privilege to out-of-state retailers. And this suit is based on Ohio's law that is violating the Commerce Clause's non-discrimination principle. Although the state is trying to take legal action against retailers via lawsuit, it's now going to face a lawsuit itself. Many of you know one of our favorite guests, Peggy No Stevens, and her group, Bourbon Women. Their annual conference is moving online and going virtual this year. And to boot, it's free. There are over 20 sessions spread out over three days, taking place August 20th through the 22nd. And you can get a front row seat right there watching on YouTube. Go to bourbonwomen.org and register for your free ticket. Now moving on to bourbon release news, Elijah Craig announced the launch of Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel. The process begins with fully matured small batch bourbon. It is then dumped and then re-entered at barrel proof into a second custom toasted new oak barrel designed in partnership with independent stave company. It's made with 18 month air dried oak and the finishing barrel is first toasted then flash charred using a moderate toast temperature and toast time. The toasted barrel line extension will be in standard Elijah Craig bottles but the face, side and neck labels will have smoky blue features. It will have an SRP of $49.99 and the Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel will launch nationally on an allocated basis starting in September. BR Distilling Company, based in Memphis, Tennessee, is releasing a new product line called Blue Note Juke Joint. It's the newest iteration under its award-winning Blue Note Bourbon product line. Like Blue Note's nine-year-old premium small batch expression, Blue Note Juke Joint is not high as aged, but is also unfiltered and bottled at 93 proof. With a suggested retail price of $29.99, It will be first available in Memphis, Tennessee, but will make its way out to Alabama, Arkansas, Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, Kansas, Mississippi, New York, and Tennessee. Well, it's already in Memphis, but other parts of Tennessee relatively soon. In Bourbon Pursuit news, it's another week and another barrel. Ryan, Moore, myself, and three Patreon supporters are taking a trip to Danville to visit our friends Pat and Shane from Wilderness Trail. And, well, we're going to buy some whiskey. You can see all the barrels that we've selected this year right on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit. It's a fun way that you can get access to some bourbon and you can also help the podcast at the same time. We appreciate all those patrons out there that support us already. Now for today's podcast, Nancy Fraley, she was back on episode 140 and we talked about Joseph Magnus and how she got the nickname The Nose. She's back, and this time we go even to more of her blending, or maybe mingling. And we also touch on barrel sizes, terroir, the art of barrel finishing, 
And there's so much more that goes into barrel finishing than I realized. After this podcast, you're going to know that not all barrel finishes are created equal. Bourbon Pursuit is up for a People's Choice Podcast Award, and we need your help. Please go to podcastawards.com and register and vote as a listener. I know, registering is not fun. I promise you're not going to get any spam, but we want to take this trophy home. So please vote for us in the People's Choice and Arts category. It'd be awesome to win this thing. Voting ends on the 31st of this month, so thank you to everybody that has voted already. With that, enjoy today's episode, and here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Oh, I didn't want to comb my hair. I just wanted to go outside and walk and and not feel the full beating pounding sensation of the sun upon my forehead. So I grabbed a hat. I didn't even look at what it was. I just grabbed the hat off of the rack. I saw it was black. It's got the little, you know, trucker hat style where it's netted in the back and it's got the little snappies here. I'll even make the little snap for you. You know, you can hear that snap kind of going clicking in and out. The classic, classic, classic way to make a hat. It was just there and it I put it on, and it fit really well. I, I I pulled it forward. I'm not a straight bill hat guy. I'm a I'm a like just give it a little bend, not full blown like Army Ranger, where it's a dadgum cone, but just a little bend. Like I'm a center fielder for the Milwaukee Brewers. They're going to win the Central, by the way. Sorry about that, Cubs. And I just I put the hat on. I went outside walking, and my neighbors were were looking at me funny. They were looking at me funny. I was like, what, what the hell? I mean, did I, did I, did I like, you know, do I have something in my face? Do I got a booger hanging out of my nose? Do I still have, do I have food in my beard? Did, I, you know, one of the nachos get stuck there down at the bottom and there's a little rat jumping up, you know, about to jump off a tree and, and get it off my beard? I was like, why the hell are these people looking at me funny? I get home, take the dog off the leash, and I look in the mirror. I'm wearing a Jack Daniels hat. The damn thing fits so well, and I didn't even think to look at the front of it. Now, granted, this was uh, pre-coffee, kind of a walk, just kind of out, you know, getting the day going, but I was wearing a Jack Daniels hat. I typically do not wear brand hats unless the hat is, like, really, 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 really cool. Like, I love the Wilderness Trail hat. I like the H.C. Clark Distillery hat, but, man, that Jack Daniels hat, it was really... It was really game. Yeah, I really liked it. But so I just did this video call where I was I had to go and I had, I had to talk to some people on a video conference. And I took the hat off because I knew I would be hat shamed. And somebody would ask me, why are you wearing a Jack Daniels hat? So, yeah, I guess that's kind of a confession. I like the Jack Daniels hat. And if you see me wearing it in public, It doesn't mean anything. I just like the hat. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you have a really cool distillery hat that you like, take a picture of it and tag me on your Instagram, and uh, I'll give you my comments. My Instagram is at Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof, 
And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny here just today talking with somebody that we've had on the show before, but today we're going to dive in just a little bit further about what it really is to be a master blender. What are the techniques and characteristics that you try to pull out of, or should I, characteristics you try to pull out of whiskeys and then the techniques that you use to be able to blend them and do different things. So it's going to be a, an interesting show because, you know, we've talked on the, on the podcast plenty of times before about like, well, how do we even get into blending? Like what makes something uh, an interesting blend? Can you take stuff that's off the shelf, like finding your favorite stag and your favorite four roses and try to mix them together and create something new? But sometimes it really doesn't end up working out for you. But, you know, that's maybe that's what our our, uh, our guest today is going to help shed just a little bit of light on for us. So today on the show, we have Nancy Fraley. Now, you might have heard her before, but she is a consulting master blender. She's also an international consultant with that as well, but she does a lot of freelance master blending most of the time. So, Nancy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back. It's, uh, I think, been a couple of years since uh, since I was uh, almost exactly two years ago now. <laughs> See, you, you remember it better than I do. I was just like... <laughs> I knew we were going through this and we had we had some people that said, you know, like we'd love to have somebody on the show that can talk more about like the blending side of it, because there's so many things that happen inside the blending world that don't get a, you know, really to shine a light on. Because like I guess just with American whiskey, it's always about the master distiller. The master distiller always seems to have the spotlight. It's the one that typically has a lot of the the road shows, you know, saying hi to people, kissing babies, whatever it is. And and so, you know, you're you're kind of a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that we're we're hoping to to bring that to light. So if you can kind of give us a, a recap about, you know, your life and real quick, kind of like where you got to here, if anybody hasn't gone back and listened to that original episode with us. Sure. Um, so uh I I won't go too deeply into it, but like a a lot of people that at least the, these days get in, into this industry, I had a very varied background. I um, got a, a, a undergraduate degree in uh, religious studies at University of Tennessee. And from there, I went on to Harvard Divinity School and uh, studied Tibetan Buddhism. And then I ended up going to law school. <laughs> None of these get you on a path to like saying like, I'm going to blend whiskey for the rest of my life. So, right. Guess- yeah, yeah. I don't know if we ever talked about this before. Like, what was the uh, the idea of divinity school and everything like that that you were you were searching for? What was your your mindset then? The uh, academic study of Buddhism, of Tibetan Buddhism, and study of uh, well that that led me to uh, study international human rights and law school through the plight of the. Tibetan diaspora, for for example, and um, after law school, I uh, I know I've talked about this so many times. It's so cliched, but I I had gone to a fundraiser, had uh, had my first taste of uh, Germain Robin, uh alambic brandy, and it, it was so life changing. I quit my job at a law firm, <laughs> traveled around the world, Morocco, Spain. Um, Mexico, and a, a year later, I found myself working at Germain Robin, and uh, I never looked back. That one sip just kind of really just puts you over the edge there, and you kind of had, kind of just had like that epiphany moment. Was that really what it was? Well, I was already a connoisseur. I I was already a, a whiskey fan, a big whiskey fan, and um, I just became obsessed with everything having to do with the process of making it and, uh, you know, learning about distillation and maturation blending. I, I just, uh, you know, I guess I started off as an obsessed fan, if that makes sense. It's kind <laughs> of what most of our I know I'm are. doing it professionally and, um, and, uh, you know, or, you know, learning how to do it professionally and, and uh, so, you know, it's yeah, just a uh, um, path in life that 
you just never know, you know, where the, the road's going to lead. Um, but I, I can't imagine doing anything else than uh, what I do now. And so what was that, that first sort of thing that, that kind of got you on a different path of like saying to figure out like, okay, this is how I'm going to start learning how to blend or anything like that. How did you have a, who was your teacher or who was your, who was your monk at that time that kind of like shepherds you down this path? Yeah, sure. So um, I would consider my mentor to be Hubert Germain Robin, uh, the founder and um, uh, master distiller and blender at uh, Germain Robin Alambic Brandy, which uh, now is um, owned by Gallo. And uh, from from there, after uh, uh, learning from, with him, I've uh, just about every year I end up going back to France and studying with, uh, even now I still do that study with the other uh, master blenders. Um, I've studied with rum master blenders, just taking a real cross-cultural approach to, to my uh, methodology of blending and such. I, although I, I feel very rooted in the French style, of, if that makes sense. And I, I tend to bring that sensibility back to my my work with bourbon and uh, other whiskeys. Well, tell me, what is the French style? I don't know if I know what the differences of styles that you're talking about here. So, um, so I'm deeply influenced by cognac production, for for instance. So, a, a good example of that would be the the use of um, uh, when you're going from cask strength down to bottling strength. It would be very customary uh, for, say, a high-end cognac to go down and proof very slowly over time, uh, well, uh, both over time and at the time that you're doing reduction, if, if that makes sense. So, so that, that would be a, a good example of it. And um, what that does is it allows the alcohol and the uh, water molecules and fat and such to be able to bond better and uh, you know, it really affects mouthfeel, flavor, creates a more elegant bourbon, for example. Okay. So I guess, tell me what, tell me what are like other styles. So we get French styles. Like what are other styles of, of blending? Like, cause for me, I don't really know. I just thought it was like, Hey, we'll take a little bit here, take a little bit there, mix it together. We'll see if it works. Like what, are, what are different styles, I guess? Well, other styles of blending would be, um, it's traditionally done here in the States, for instance, we tend to talk more about mingling as opposed to, to blending, um, you know, as you know, one would in, in France or in Scotland or in the uh, uh, Caribbean and you know, for rum, uh, uh, Central and South America. So in France, for example, the uh, role of the master blender is really, for want of a better term, kind of elevated above that of the distiller. Uh, that's not saying that the role of the distiller is uh, uh, insignificant, but that's what people talk about, I guess. <laughs> uh, that's the person that goes out kissing babies. It's more blessing. marketing, yeah. <laughs> they get all they get all the they get all the fame, if you will. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it's just um, kind of a different approach to working with the alcohol itself. A little bit more of a gentle approach. Um, and you know, like I said, slowly proofing down over time, being very attentive to the way that you use uh, temperature and humidity in your warehouse to be able to create different aroma profiles. And, and that's, that's not to say that we don't do that here in the U.S., but it, it, there's just so much thought that goes into it over there. Uh, and, you know, being able to uh, blend, uh, you know, say, a, a spirit that's spent time in a, um, a very humid warehouse, you know, versus one that's been in a very drier warehouse, you're going to get different aroma profiles from that. And to be able to, to use both of those barrels from those two environments to create kind of the perfect blend, of, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And and I think you, you brought up something really interesting was blending versus mingling. Now, what side of the fence do you line up on? Do you like is like is blending? I mean, you had the word master blender in there. Would you rather be called like master mingler? Like what what, what kind of <laughs> what, what side of the fence do you, do you live on? This sort of, yeah. yeah, well, I know here in the States, uh, I understand the history behind why the 
term blender has become somewhat of, of a dirty word, if, if that makes sense. And I, I guess I'm on a mission to try and revive that um, and, and not, not make it a, a dirty word. So I tend to go with blending. I tend to, well, I, I just like the term better. Um, when I talk about blending, I'm, of course, not talking about making a blended whiskey or some kind of inferior product but of uh, finding some kind of coherent way to, you know, say, c combine bourbon barrels to, together from different ages, um, different places in the warehouse, you know, uh, different aroma profiles that I'm looking for to be able to create something that's a lot more um, sophisticated and elegant and um, uh, has more finesse than usually what you can find from, from just a single cask alone. And you get you get the idea that a blend uh, the, the idea of a blend kind of has that connotation because of what blended whiskey was back in the day. We were taking grain neutral spirits and trying to uh, basically make a make a product that could you could drink, but it didn't cost you that much to to actually create. Right. Yeah. 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 Sat more the the bottom shelf, <laughs> as it were. So I I I perfectly understand. Um. Uh. You know where the history behind that here in the uh, U.S. why uh, blending has uh, gotten s somewhat of a, a negative connotation. But I, uh, one thing I am noticing, though, uh, that I've noticed uh, in, in the bourbon world and, and just in the uh, whiskey world in general is that I, I'm noticing producers talking a lot more about blending now and celebrating that art whether they're they're doing it as more in the capacity of um you know, say a an independent bottler type of situation or you know buying barrels from different sources and blending them to together to be able to create new profiles so so that that gives me a lot of um confidence that you know uh, you know we can revive a, a positive tradition of of blending here in the US yeah, absolutely. So you talked about the U.S. a lot, and I know you're doing a lot of things with the international market. Kind of talk about like where is the U.S. versus the international market in regards of like how busy you are or like trends you're seeing that could eventually get adopted into the U.S. as well. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I well, I tend to work uh, here in the states with uh, uh, many of the same people uh, clients over and over again, like. Joseph Magnus or Wyoming Whiskey or J. Henry and Sons, uh, Iron Root Republic, you know, people like that, still Austin. Uh, what I'm finding is uh, the whiskey world abroad is becoming so interesting. And uh, for example, I've, I've got a new client in uh, Vietnam. We're uh, uh, working on a corn whiskey, uh, an heirloom corn whiskey using um, koji mold in the fermentation, much like you would, say, to make soju, for example, um, and, you know, aging that. And so I, I think um, they're being very inspired by some of the, the craft movement that we've done here in the States, and they're taking that to their cultures and, you know, creating something that's this very, um, you know, incorporates their own terroir and their own cultural sensibilities. And I, and I think that, that what's going to happen too, that we in the States are going to be informed by those whiskeys as well. And, you know, that, that it's going to be, um, uh, for, what, for whatever better uh, analogy, kind of like the uh, pizza effect, if, if that makes sense. All right. What's the pizza effect? I don't know what you're talking about here. <laughs> so uh, when a, a, a pizza came over from Italy to the uh, uh, North America, we kind of made it our own thing. And then it went back over to Italy. You know, they've they've been inspired by the way that we make pizza. So that's that's what I mean, you know, kind of like a cultural borrowing exchange, uh, you know, uh, it's a boomerang. It's a boomerang. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. New, you know, being an inspired by new ideas, things that uh, you know we hadn't thought of before. So I, in that sense, I think it's a really exciting time for um, not just for uh, well, you know, what I do at 
a lot working with cask finishing for bourbon and such, but uh, um, just uh, there was just so much uh, inspiration from uh, outside sources and um, you know, internationally, you know, kind of the world's the oyster, uh, oyster at the moment. So um, as I do find more, you know, more and more of my time is spent um, outside of the United States, I, I, I get so inspired by these projects and then I, I get ideas of things I want to do here. <laughs> it's, it's just exciting to me. I, yeah, that's uh, it opens up the whole world as a blender. Oh, for sure. And you know, you mentioned one term in there that I've I've always found interesting, but I don't really know that much about it. And I know I'm probably going to say it because my my dog that he always sometimes on the podcast, some people like listen to it sometimes in the background. It's and it's a terrier. Now I know it's not terrier, but it's like terrar. <laughs> so so explain what like terrar and and sort of the whiskey world really is, and like how it's implemented. So uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, Boy, uh, there are so many levels of this. So it's like start. you could ask it to five different people and get five different answers. Is that what you're yeah, trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you probably don't find terroir quite as much in corn as the way that you might say in a, a great distillate, for instance. Or, but, but I, I would also take that back that you probably do. I, I know that I've got um. Uh, work with Jay Henry and Sons up in uh, uh, Wisconsin, and they're they're growing their own corn. Uh, it's a, a red heirloom corn uh, varietal that was developed by the University of Wisconsin back in, let's say, 1939 or so. Um, they they grow that themselves. They they grow their own barley, or um, excuse me, their own rye, their own wheat. Um, the barley will be coming on soon. And they've been doing that since the 40s. And so, um, you know, the uh, taste of place, you really get a sense of what that, <laughs> you know, the corn and, and um, uh, rye and, and wheat, you know, what that, that, that tastes like there. Plus, uh, I think um, not just with them necessarily, but any bourbon producer or any uh, whiskey pr producer here in the States. Terroir uh, is part of your um, maturation environment, uh, influenced by the materials of your um, your rick house, for example. So if you, know, you were so lucky um, as some, uh, some of our friends in Kentucky to uh, uh, still have rick houses where you have humidity coming up from the earth, Oh, dirt floors. No. Yeah, yeah, I see it all the time. Uh, absolutely. So, so you're not just getting humidity from the earth, but you're also getting um, some minerality in that whiskey too. Not to mention uh, uh, microclimates and um, so so many factors that go into to terroir um, bourbon. For for example, that's made in more arid environments uh, versus bourbon that's made in a more you know, humid hot environment like uh, Kentucky, you know, where you get a lot of uh, diurnal fluctuation in the summertime in the warehouse and have, uh, you know, nice cool winter and hot summer. And I'm seeing all these, these different terroirs develop here in the U.S. Well, there we go. So we got, we got one good definition of what terroir is or terroir, terroir. <laughs> Sometimes I can't say it properly, yeah, but it's, yeah. That's good. That's good. And so I kind of want to want to shift a little bit and kind of get back into like the the meat of the subject of really what today is all about and really getting to, you know, blending as well as the cask finishing side, because you've kind of really explored a lot of things in the cask finishing world. And I really want to get into that. The first thing is getting into just the the first part of the whiskey in itself. So, so say you want to go and you want, you got to start off with a bourbon, you want to start blending it. And maybe that blend is going to be finished. Maybe it's not, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll wait for that for a second. Let's just say it's just blending in general. What are the characteristics you're looking for? Whether there are certain barrels, whether there are lots of barrels, whether there are different types of mash bills, whatever it is that you find or try to find interesting to try to actually blend all of this together. 
Oh boy, oh, that's <laughs> it's a loaded. It's a loaded question. It's a loaded question. So let's let's try unpack that. Um, there are a lot of things I'm looking for. So it it depends on the a the the whiskey I'm working with, um, the age of that whiskey. Uh, if I, I take um, well. What, what would you prefer? Like when you're sitting there, when you're sitting there blending something and you're like, okay, like is, is age the first thing you look for? Is it taste? Is it a combination of the both? Like where, where is your head at when somebody says, Nancy, come in here. I want you to help me blend something. Where do you, where do you start? Um, I'm looking for the aroma uh, to, to understand the aroma profile of the whiskey and the cask that I have to work with. So I'm, I'm looking for that, you know, whether or not they, you know, if it's very spicy whiskey or very fruity. I'm also uh, looking overall at the conchiner content of the distillate itself. So, you know, if if it's a very um, light flavored whiskey, for example, I, I know that I can't overpower that with certain kinds of cask finishes. I'm looking at the tannin content that's that's in that whiskey and that that part is really important if i'm working with a whiskey that already has a lot of tannin and the the tannins are not quite as oxidized and mellowed out as i want then the the last thing i want to do is to pair that with a finishing cask that's going to have too many fresh tannins to offer if if that makes sense so for example you know, let's let's say I'm, I'm want to finish a bourbon in a um, Armagnac cask, for example. Well, French oak tends to have ten times the amount of tannins that American oak has, and so I'm going to be looking at not only what was previously in you know what kind of Armagnac was previously in in that Armagnac cask, but but also the age of that cask itself. French oak can be technically new for maybe five to seven years where it still has a lot of extractives, a, a lot of tannin content to offer. So say I'm making a Joseph Magnus cigar blend, for example, um, and I'm uh, working with uh, a bourbon that's already 13 to 20 years old. The, the kind of Armagnac cask I'm looking for are going to be maybe, say, between seven and 12 years old. So I, I get something from that cask, but I'm not really, um, you know, if I, if I, if I used a three-year-old Armagnac cask, you know, freshly dumped, then I, I'm just going to get a ton of tannin and extractives that I, I don't necessarily want. And I'm not going to have the appropriate time to really oxidize that out. Uh, you know, the more tannin content you get, the longer it's going to take for that to soften and, you know, for the oxidation process to occur and, and such. So uh, again, the uh, things I'm looking for is conchiner content of the distillate itself. You know, is it a um, very, you know, light vodka like, you know, versus something very, you know, hearty, heavy handed, uh, or not, not heavy handed, but, you know, like a, a, a hearty rye, for example, not, not just age, but tannin content, yeah, you know, that sort of thing, and um, and then also, you know, what what kind of finishing cask I would have to work with it. And so, I got another kind of question with that as well, because you're you're going through and you're talking to a distillery and you're saying, uh, okay, like here's our whiskey. And then, have you ever gone into somebody like that and their whiskey's so young, and they're saying, like, you know, how can I cover this up, or is this usable in a blend yet? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. 
And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Have you ever gone into somebody like that and their whiskey's so young and they're saying like, you know, how can I cover this up? Or is this usable in a blend yet? Like oh. kind of tell me, tell me about some of the stories like that. <laughs> well, uh, Fortunately, I try not to have clients in that position anymore. <laughs> Most guess, of the time, those, I, those just have to be like hard conversations. Yes, to have. I, yeah. I I have found myself in that situation, and um, that's not a good position to be in, where you you know have uh, issues that you've got to cover up. Um, that's not saying I haven't had clients that not being in that in that position before it's it certainly have and um boy i'm trying to think how best to answer that one uh sometimes that's just a case where you're you know that you're not going to make the most artful whiskey <laughs> if that makes sense <laughs> but you're trying to save that client from themselves essentially to put something respectable out on on the market at least i i don't know if that answers your question or not it's it was uh, a pretty pc answer so i think you did all right there <laughs> i i don't want to offend anyone out there that, <laughs> if i if, if i can help it at all yeah but i mean we all know what like that that young whiskey note is right oh, yeah, like do you know exactly like what attributes to that per se and like in, in your professional opinion is there anything that you can do with it? Or is it just like, you know, it's part of your investment, set it, forget it, wait until it's ready? Well, uh, one of the things I try and get, uh, everybody that works with me is uh, we do not use small barrels. We go with at least fit the standard 53-gallon you know, uh, industry standard barrels. And in some cases uh, for... Clients I work with in Texas or uh, you know, the hot climates, um, Florida and, and such, we might even use 63 gallons because 53 is too small in that uh, kind of environment. So first of all is uh, uh, using quality cooperage, you know, where the staves have been seasoned long enough. Uh, that is part of that young greenish taste when uh, distillers using um, kiln dried cooperage. And, uh, and what, what, what happens there essentially is that in kiln drying, you don't really have any chemical reactions that are occurring when you're going from say a moisture content of 60% in that wood down to say about 12%. You know, that's, that's happening over the course of a month, uh, say, you know, during that um, killing process, whereas in, you know, when you're stave seasoning, you're going down, you know, at least or uh, you know, from 60% uh, moisture content in, in that wood and down to 12, but over a very long period of time. Plus, you, you have different fungi that are breaking down that wood and you know, breaking down the lignans and uh, the tannins and, uh, and and allowing for the right chemical reactions to occur in that wood, so so the, the tannins are going to be a lot softer and such. So I I know I just went off on a whole other um, topic. Well, there, but it but it but it's all interrelated. So so that that's a big part of what I have people do is to use um, you know quality cooperage. Um, 
having the right kind of uh, maturation conditions too is, is a big part of what I work with. So, and for for example, if I have a client that's in a, a very um, arid place and they're not getting enough humidity in their uh, warehouse, you can't really have quality uh, whiskey coming from 7% humidity. <laughs> in that kind of case, you need to find a way to um, offer a little bit more humidity. Otherwise, your whiskey is going to be really dry and harsh and uh, aggressive. So so it's working with, with those kind of an elements. And, and finally, like you say, to my mind, I have not seen anything that can overcome um, time just time and patience in the barrel. People I work with these days, you know, we make sure that we have the requisite time. And, you know, what? Uh, how much time that is is going to depend on where they are. Um, the amount of time that it takes for barrels to mature in um, Wyoming, you know, you know where, where it's uh, you know, very arid and uh, you know, you've got long winters and a, you know, a short, hot summer or Wisconsin, you know, where, where it's going to be very cool, you know, versus say Florida or Washington, DC or wherever, I, all that's going to be contingent. You know, maybe those barrels are ready to go at four years old in one place, or, or you know, maybe the barrels aren't really ready to go until well over five years or six years in another location. So I find that you just have to build it into your business plan or take a day job. <laughs> in the Whatever meantime. it is. Yeah. 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 But I, but I'm a firm believer of uh, you just, uh, I, I just haven't seen any way to get over that, that threshold of time and patience. So there's one thing that you said that was pretty interesting and in, in how you're trying to steer your customers in the right way, depending on their climate. You know, you said if you're in Florida or Texas, maybe you want to get 63 gallon barrels versus 53. Correct. I'm just going and assuming that this is because of the faster evaporation rate is going to have a little bit more, you're going to have more room in there and you have more chemical reaction change. Um, and to tag onto that, like, is there any other things that people can do in certain climates that, that can affect or what they can do to try to, you know, change that effect of the whiskey as well, whether it's the barrel, whether it's something else. Well, certainly the barrel is is going to have a huge um, impact. And uh, for an instance, with the Iron Root Republic uh, distillery down in um, Denison, Texas, uh, long moved up to 63 gallons. And uh, otherwise, the extraction rate, or well, both evaporation and extraction rate is just so fast that, uh, you know, 50, I mean, I never thought I would have ever said this before until I, I worked in those kind of climates that, that a 53 gallon barrel is a small barrel. <laughs> and they were like, uh, oh, my God. they're probably saying, Nancy, this is going to be a very heavy investment. Now we're going to have to get massive barrels. But it is, I mean, it, it makes a big difference. And, you know, in, in Florida with the St. Augustine, or, uh, distillery, we've, you know, we're moving into 63s too. And in, in some cases, I have to say even 63 might be too small, believe it or not. So now I kind of want to switch into a little bit more of the uh, the finishing side of it, right? Because I think this is what you know a ton about. I mean, you were just schooling me a lot on the French oak and how it had more tannins than American oak. Um, so I'm sure we could talk about tannins and all that oak uh, <laughs> for another hour if we wanted to. But kind of talk about like, so 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 say you taste a whiskey that's four years, you take, taste one that's seven years, taste one that's 11 years. How do you decide like, this one's going to be port, this one's going to be whatever. Like, do, do you start off with like a conversation with a customer that says, you know, what do you want to finish it in? What kind of profile are you going for? And then we try to figure out casks. Like, how does that conversation start? It can come from many different angles. So for example, I, I might have clients that are, um, live in a place, you know, like Florida or, um, Texas where there was Spanish influence, historically, you know, or, or French influence or something uh, like that. So if if they can find a way to draw in something from their history 
of the place, you know, say in um, Texas, you know, with the Spanish influence, you know, would it be possible to use sherry or rum or something in, in that whiskey? So, and, you know, that which which would work into their, their marketing and sales and, you know, they could use um, cask finishing that way. So if, if they approach me from that angle, I always do this. I always make up prototypes and test the the whiskey to make sure that it will actually go with, um, you know, say a port finish or a cognac finish or Armagnac or, you know, whatever, Sherry, you know, PX, Oloroso, all those to see if that actually works. And, and if, if it does work, then, then we'll go with it. Um, but, but what I'm looking for again, or you know, the same things I mentioned a, a little while ago, the congener content of the, the distillate itself, um, the tannin profile, tannin profile of the barrels, the, the, the finishing cask I'd be working with, you know, I'm taking all these things into consideration, uh, how long, not just at, at how long part of it also depends on um, their climate and uh, what time of year we would be entering that whiskey into the barrels. So, you know, if, if maybe we do, you know, say get, get some finishing casks that are, uh, have a little bit more tannin content than I would like, ideally, then I'm probably going to want to enter, you know, say, that bourbon into those casks in the fall and winter time. So it's not going to drink up quite as much you know, tannin and uh, other extractives. Uh, so I don't know if that gets to your question or not, but but there it is. Uh, it is, and you kind of sparked another one for me because you said oh. that you want to like you, you said you want to like test these things out, right? Yeah. So how do how do you test something out without saying like we got to go full blown like give me two barrels, I got to mix them, I got to blend them? I mean, do you just say like okay, if we're going to see what this is like, like port, I'll just take an eyedropper of some port, put it in there, swish it around downstairs and in my basement I've, I've got some old um you know say three gallon barrels that the oak is fairly uh ox or um neutralized at at that point but maybe i'll put sherry in there and dump that sherry out and uh you know run a little experiment for for a few months or something so so yeah you know there there are ways i i can kind of see if, if if that's even going to to work and you know sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't and and you know I I usually have an idea if it's going to work or not but I never um, would not test it I I just I am a firm believer in kind of doing your research first and making sure that you know a, a cask finishing program has a good chance of succeeding. Because that could be I a very expensive ever, mistake. Oh my god! Yeah, that that is an understatement. <laughs> exactly. I know. I know. Even with our own stuff, like people have said, like, "Oh, you know, fat, finish a cask or anything." I'm like, "No, we don't know what we're doing. Why would we? We were, that would be that'd be a very costly, uh, costly mistake if it didn't turn out right." Well, and you know, you've got to uh, when you get those finishing casks, um, if if they're coming from um, Europe, for example, depending on what time of year you get those casks, you know, say that your your shipment doesn't arrive until summer. Well, at that point, by the time you get the cask, not not only will you know they have dried out considerably, but you, know, you might also find some. Um, uh, Brett has set up in there, or acetic acid, acetone, um, and just all, all kinds of nasty things that now you can't really use the, the casks. So I'm always looking at, uh, you know, there's a time of year at which I like to receive those barrels, have them ordered, and, um, and to get going before the hot season gets going. There are just so, so many things to to I have to think about to to do a cask finishing program that I I think people don't really realize just how difficult it is and how much attention you have to pay to it. I know I you know, there are projects I work on that I have uh, have clients send me samples. Uh, I've had had samples every week or every two weeks just so I can make sure that things are progressing as they should. I, I, you just have to watch it like a hawk. Oh, you know, for sure. you can't just set it and forget it as they say. 
<laughs> Hope for the best. See what happens. Yeah, here. exactly. <laughs> and, and so I know when, so we did a, a finished uh, single barrel we did at Joseph Magnus and we were encouraged or told as we were going through this process to like find a whiskey that has more of like an, an oily texture to it and that you're going to pull more of the characteristics out of a, a cognac barrel that we finished. Kind of talk about that. Like when you're looking for a particular whiskey to finish, like is there a, a particular characteristic about it that you could say is going to do better as a cast finish versus just something that would just be great as a straight bourbon? Oh, well, um, yeah, well, if, if you're looking for something, uh, you know, just a single barrel is a straight bourbon, you're going to want that cast to be pretty much perfect as is. Now, if I'm, uh, you know, when uh, what you're talking about doing a cognac finish at Magnus, um, one thing I, I would be looking for would not not just be the oiliness and the mouthfeel, but as I was saying again, really looking at the tannin content of that bourbon barrel and knowing uh, how to properly pair that with you know the the right age cognac cask, if that makes sense. So, you know, for example, I wouldn't want to take a 13-year-old um, MGPI cask uh you, you know that um magnus would, would have sourced and then pair that with a five-year-old fresh cognac cask you're just going to end up with a lot of tannin and you know the while the whiskey might have a nice oily mouth feel it's it's going to be very aggressive and dry and so uh, you're just going to have to be really careful you know how, how you pair those type of things and uh, does does that get your yeah, now you got my head running like, Question oh, that- <laughs> I, I wonder how I wonder how old the barrel is that we matured it in now. I gotta go back and think about that. Yeah, and, so- yeah, and you know, those are um, the kind of things you've got to think about. Uh, it just uh, all of that's you know going to factor in so much to the success of that finishing. So they're saying there is some science involved here, you know, as, as somebody said in the chat here, it's just, it's just not just uh, throw it in the barrel and see what happens. You yeah. know, there, there's, there's a lot of thought process that is actually going into yeah, this. Yeah, a, a lot of it. And I, I know anything I personally work on um, that I am obsessive with it. You know, I, I, I want to check those casks every two weeks and, you know, just to make sure. And, and I've seen changes happen within literally a week. Uh, where where things have gone downhill, and so I, you know, I'm just super obsessed. <laughs> I, I guess. Well, I guess you kind of have to be. You definitely have to be with that. And so I guess a, another question about like when you're when you're trying to finish a cask is is the length of period of time that you are going to finish it in. Um, you've heard of some people that wait up to like a year or six months. There's some people that are like uh, like two weeks. Like what's the What's the ballpark like? What's the science behind trying to figure that part out? Here's here's something I would really, really, really like uh, whiskey fans to understand that, and I've seen this out here with consumers that think that that if um, if if a cask finish hasn't been for a year or two, that somehow it's inferior. In some cases, that's very appropriate to do. But again, you're, it, it's going to depend on the conchner content and the um, oak profile, tannin profile of the, the the whiskey that you're working with to be finished. Going to depend on all the factors, you know, the age of the cask, t- tannins, uh, extractive content it has to offer, size of the cask. Uh, you know, there are so, so many things to think about. And that in in some cases, maybe three months in that cask and then transferring it into, say, an exhausted cask where you're just looking for an oxidation vessel um, would work better. In some cases, you know, maybe that finishing cask, you can carry, you know, the, the finish all the way through, you know, for a year or two or so. And it all depends on, you know, how the product is rounding out, you know, say, say you're working with a port finish, for example, is the, 
fortified wine marrying right with the whiskey itself? Is it becoming too whiny? In which case, uh, you know, I, I would want to get it out of that cask or, or somehow blend in a little bit more bourbon. And so, so it's uh, not, not quite so whiny. You know, there are just so many things to consider and, you had mentioned that, you know, something can take a downward turn really quickly. And John Henderson asked, he goes, can it also take a rapid improvement in also a short period of time? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, that's, uh, I've, and, and I've seen it do both things in the cask, take a rapid improvement, take a decline, and then, then, then go back up again. So, you know, that, that too is why, you know, you can't just set it and f- forget it. You really have to, to watch it like a, hawk for instance um and I, yeah i hope it's okay if i pull out something an example of something i worked on yeah sure go for um, it so Tell me about it um so one that uh, would i think just hit the market this week was the um joseph magnus um murray hill special uh release and um and what i used for this one uh batch three um i used some virginia distillery company um they make single malt whiskey, but they had finished some of their malt and cider cask. So the first use of that cask was cider, the second malt. And then when I got it, um, you know, I, I put Murray Hill Club in there, you know, which is a blend of, you know, 10 to 20 year old whiskey. And I found when I, when I initially uh, put the whiskey in those casks, there, there were still a lot of lees from the um, cider, and I should, I should I explain what lees are? Yes, please, because okay, I'm okay, totally sure. lost with it. <laughs> so, uh, 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 lees are if you're making wine or cider, uh, something like that. It's the uh, uh, residual dead yeast cells and kind of this uh, whitish looking stuff, um, and it had, has a lot of fat to it. Um, anyway, uh, they're they were still caked on these barrels. And, and so when I put the whiskey in, the whiskey automatically turned, um, it got really hazy and I, I panicked. I thought, oh my God. Yeah. Be like, uh, this isn't right. Yeah. But, uh, so, so I dumped the whiskey and then, uh, let it settle in the tank and, uh, you know, all the, the leaves just kind of dropped out. So I put it back into those cider malt cask again that would have been last April, I want to say. Um, the casks were going beautifully until about um, just getting better and better and better every month until about August. And then all of a sudden, in the, the heat of the summer, I noticed a decline in the uh, the aroma profile that I, I, I was losing some of the, um, the malt notes and the cider notes, some of the apple notes were beginning to, to fade. So I was in a panic. And, uh, you know, I'm checking these casks uh, at least, you know, once every two or three weeks. And you know, that was a case where I actually had to buy more freshly dumped cider malt cask and, and then, then do a second finish, uh, you know, put the uh, whiskey that I had in, in the, from, from the first cider malt cask into these casks. And then all of a sudden, I I get a rise in the malt and an uh, apple characteristics, but now I'm drinking in too much tannin. So after you know a f- few weeks, I, I thought, well, at this point, I am going to to have to transfer these back into the old cider cask <laughs> because I you know I got a, a, f- a fresh infusion of of the the aromas, you know, the apple and you know, you know malty, you know. Uh, kind of notes I wanted, but I didn't want all that fresh tannin from those casks either. So I know I keep on harping on this and going over the, the same thing over and over and over again, but it really is a labor of of love. You really have to be meticulous with those casks and, and they're, they're going to, uh, just as you were talking about a minute ago, you know, they, they might initially taste really great. Um, and then, you know, you notice a decline and cask barrels tend to go through various crests and troughs and oxidation cycles. So you kind of have to put part of the art of blending is to know when it's just going through a natural oxidation cycle or if there's something really going on with that cask where you need to take it out of the barrel. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, you know, put it in something else before it, it takes down that train of going the, <laughs> on the wrong track. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Which, which it sounds want. like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're spending a lot of time making sure that these things are, are getting the flavor profile that you do want to get out of it. And, and you had just mentioned a cask there that I wouldn't even have thought of. Like, I mean, you typically you think of, yeah, Armiac, Cognac, PX, Oloroso, uh, Madeira, stuff like that. And, and, you know, I know I, I feel so bad because we're running low on time and I, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to do this again some point because there's so many questions in the cask finishing world that I don't even think we got to. But, you know, what one thing I kind of want to leave people with here is, you know, when you are trying to figure out what kind of like cask finishing that you are going to get into, um, you know, is there is there something that you feel is just tried and true that at this point it's been done? It's really hard to mess up. So go and venture off of that thing instead of saying like, let's do, let's do apple cider that had also done coffee beans that did honey. And then we'll go put our whiskey in it. Well, there, there are some that are quote tried and true like sherry or port, but even within that realm, there's still so many, so many possibilities for everything to go downhill and to go wrong. You know, like I was saying, you know, if, if uh, uh, you get in some sherry cask and they've, they've been sitting in customs, you know, in a hot warehouse for a long time and, you know, you get those and I've had clients and I insist that if, if I'm not there personally, you've got to check this and I, uh, you know, smell them and, um, uh, you know, make sure that things haven't gone downhill. And I've, I've seen people not do that before. They, they don't believe me. And then, then, then they get burned. <laughs> so, so, so even though certain um, types of cask are a little bit more predictable, if, if that makes sense and how they're going to uh, behave, uh, there's just, so much that goes in, uh, even with, with those, you know, even with the port cask or sherry that you, know, you just have to attend to. And uh, so, so many opportunities for things to go off, off track. I, I, I don't think people realize just how, how difficult even that is to do and to do it well to, uh, you know, the last thing you want to do in a cask finish is, or I, the, the, the way I feel is, if I'm uh, working with bourbon, for example, or malt, I had to be able to taste what that base whiskey is. And the cask finish should only be there to just enhance and to, to, to add a, you know, a, a little complexity to it, but you know, should never mask over what that, that base whiskey is. And that is hard to do. Uh, it is really hard to do. Well, awesome. And I've got one last question for you because you I know that I know that when people, they get into this world and they're like, oh, we're going to cast finish something. And then you also hear things about stuff that's on the market and they're like, oh, well, they start off with like a gallon of port in their whiskey or in their barrels before they try to finish it. What's your what's your take on this? Is that should the should the barrel not be bone dry, it should still be wet, but should it have like a like a, a residual amount of the product that was in there before before you add your whiskey to it or should it be empty? Um, it should, well, I, I mean, it's uh, illegal to pour anything in there. Uh, uh, obviously, you know, you can't do that. I think it depends. I, I know when I like, when I work with cask, I, I like for the, the cask to be fresh, you know, and freshly dumped, but I, I don't necessarily want to see liquid in there, but you know, it, it's still going to hold a lot in those staves. A fresh dump can still hold, I don't know, you know, two, three, four gallons of uh, of liquid. And that's wow. that's, that's actually that's a lot, lot more than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if it, if it's been um, sitting around for a while, it, it won't have that. But um, and you know, you may not see anything in the bottom, but yeah, those those staves can hold a lot of liquid in them. So, and I, I know that there's a whole, I, we could talk about this on another segment sometime, <laughs> whether or not if, if you're working with bourbon and you do a cask finish, whether or not that is truly bourbon after that. And I, I'm not going to get into the politics of that right now. I, I, again, that is another session, <laughs> but you know, I, 
I will say this, that it, that if, if you are going to do it, then the cask finish should only enhance. It should not take, you know, if I, if I, if I drink something, I, I don't want to just have a, um, you know, a, a port bomb on, on my hands and I want to taste the bourbon in there or the, <laughs> or the malt. <laughs> See everyone. So make sure you know, you realize that that Nancy is a, a bourbon person at the end of the day too. So she loves, I she am. loves her whiskey. That's, and, you know, I, I probably work with more bourbon than I do anything else. And I, you know, that's, that's not saying I, I don't blend malt and rum and uh, other things, but uh, bourbon at the end of the day is, uh, you know, where it's at. <laughs> well, fantastic. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you up to that. Cause I think yeah. let's, let's not make it two years, but let's definitely get you back on. Cause I think there's so much that we didn't even talk about, even with cast finishing and, oh, and as well as we can, Hey, we can, we that's... can debate the TTV loss to the sun goes down. That's fine with me too. <laughs> Uh, you're on, and I, I I would happily come back, and uh, you know, we can d- discuss this <laughs> and discuss and discuss. Fantastic. <laughs> so, Nancy, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure to have you. Uh, you've got a, a insane pedigree of of brands you work with, and a lot of great stuff on the market. And I know that uh, if anybody hasn't had the chance to go out and try a product that Nancy's blended or done finishing in, uh, it's it's truly remarkable. And it's, and like I said, that cigar blend is probably one of my, my favorite whiskeys of all time. I love being able to share that with people when they come over, uh, because they either never heard of it or they finally try it and they're like, Holy crap, this is actually really good. So oh, thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate yeah. that. That's, that's my babies. <laughs> Absolutely. It's fantastic. So <laughs> I appreciate glad to it. see it. Glad to see it keeps pumping out. Cause it's yeah, always great whiskey. Well, uh, and it's an, always a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you. And I, I, I can't wait till our next time either. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for joining with us. Uh, if you like what you hear, make sure you follow us on all the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And if you'd like to support the show when I ask questions as we are interviewing our guests as well, make sure you support us. Patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. With that, thank you all, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.